As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Okunbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Unsurprisingly, Japan's multi-million dollar porn industry is riddled with exploitation and abuse. And politicians are finally stepping in to regulate what has long been a legal grey area. And the UN's Cultural Heritage Agency, UNESCO, gives its stamp of approval to sites and practices that it deems are of great value to humanity. But China is using that process to stake some dubious claims about once-contested areas along its borders. First up, though. It's hard to believe how far the world has come in its fight against HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. A couple of decades ago, it was killing two million people a year, the majority of whom lived in developing countries. The UN has issued a stark warning about the spread of AIDS, particularly in parts of Africa. Treatments came along, but where they were most needed, they were entirely unaffordable. These days, a year's supply of HIV medication in sub-Saharan Africa can cost as little as $45, and average life expectancy figures have rebounded, mostly. But those drugs are only effective when they're taken, as The Economist's deputy editor, Robert Guest, has been finding out. So, how did you discover you were HIV positive? This is Ronnie. He's a 60-year-old man in South Africa. He says he only found out he was HIV positive when he was so sick he collapsed in the street and was taken to hospital. He describes himself as a fairly typical man who doesn't want to make a fuss about his health, doesn't want to appear weak. And he said he just didn't think of getting tested before getting sick. I met Ronnie and several other people with HIV on a recent trip to South Africa. UNAIDS, the United Nations body in charge of the global response to HIV, hopes to end AIDS as a major public health threat by 2030. Now, that's actually plausible because the drugs that exist work. And in the past 20 years, we've seen a huge fall in the number of people dying of AIDS. By one estimate, 21 million deaths have been averted by antiretroviral drugs or ARVs. But there's no time to be complacent because the disease is continuing to spread and to kill people. So if those drugs exist, are available, why are people like Ronnie not getting their hands on them earlier? There are lots of reasons. The main one is that a significant portion of people who have HIV don't know they have it. It takes a long time before you first start feeling sick. And during that period, that's when people are most infectious and most likely to pass the virus on to other people through sex. So it's essential that people get tested, but not everyone wants to get tested. 
A lot of men, like Ronnie, are reluctant to go to the doctor at all, particularly when they're not feeling sick. So of the roughly 40 million people in the world who've got the virus, about three quarters of them are receiving treatment, and that's great. But that leaves you with about 9 million who are not receiving treatment. And 1.3 million people were freshly infected with the virus last year. But there's not just treatments for HIV and for AIDS. There, there are preventives, no? Yes, that's exactly right. There's something called pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, which reduces the likelihood that you'll get infected during sex by about 99% and is usually taken as a daily pill. So this is being rolled out to high-risk populations. And in rich countries, that means sex workers and people who inject drugs and some gay men with very active social lives. But there is a much larger group who are at considerable risk of this, and that is women, young women particularly, in countries where HIV is very common, meaning mostly sub-Saharan Africa. And presumably you saw evidence of that when you were in South Africa. Yeah, I met a number of people who contracted HIV, usually through heterosexual sex, and they talked me through some of the difficulties of it. So South Africa's come a long way. Now they have a pretty good policy that tries to get the drugs for free into everyone who needs them. But still there are problems. Take Mako Sozanash, a lady I met in Johannesburg who found out she was HIV positive because she was tested when she was pregnant in 2009. In some ways, she's fortunate because... Pregnant women are tested automatically in, in South Africa, and finding out that she was HIV positive meant that she was immediately given free antiretroviral drugs. But taking the drugs is not necessarily simple. In what way? There's a lot of stigma attached to AIDS and HIV. And Mako Sazana had a partner who was not very helpful. His attitude to her changed completely when she said that she was HIV positive. He blamed her for bringing disease into the house, although he had probably infected her in the first place. He took her antiretroviral drugs and he threw them away. If she hid them, he'd search for them and then throw them out because he said that they were bringing sickness into the house. She told me that if she asked him to to use a condom, he would not only say no, he would repeatedly rape her without protection. This is a broader problem with the drugs. Quite often you, you have to take them every day at a specific time, and that tends to make it very obvious to your sex partner, your romantic partner, that you're taking them. If your partner has a problem, like Marco Susanna's partner did, then that can make it very hard for you to take them. But it's also a problem with PrEP, with the prophylactic drugs that people take if they don't want to get infected. How do you mean? What, what's the problem? It's extremely wise for young women, for example, to take these drugs in countries where a fifth of the population is HIV positive. But if you are taking them and your boyfriend finds out then he may decide either that you're planning to cheat on him or that you don't trust him. And either way, quite a lot of men react very badly, sometimes violently to that. So that's a huge disincentive to taking the drugs. 
So how to break that impasse then? In an ideal world, there would be a vaccine or a cure. That's still quite a long way away. There's a high-tech solution and a low-tech solution. The low-tech solution that's recommended is that you stuff cotton wool into the pill bottle so it doesn't rattle and your boyfriend doesn't know that you're taking them. The high-tech solution is instead of a daily pill, people will be able to take a longer-lasting injection. There's one that lasts about two months that's just starting to become available, and there's one that lasts six months that's in tests at the moment. That could be a game-changer. Why would that make such a big change? Once we have a single long-lasting injection that dramatically reduces the chances of contracting HIV among people who haven't got it, that's when you could give it routinely to all the girls in schools in countries where HIV is a very big problem. That wouldn't be practical until you have a six-month injection. Difficult to get hold of. Now, of course, this is not happening yet. It's not practical to hand out daily pills to girls in school. But if you had a six-month injection, you could. It would be hugely controversial, but it holds out the promise of allowing a whole generation to grow up virus-free and healthy. But all of that sounds like it might well be very expensive if these are novel drugs. Uh, Yes, it would be very expensive. You would have to have very serious negotiations about drug prices. But to put this into perspective, $21 billion was spent on fighting HIV in poor and middle-income countries in, in 2022, with slightly less than half of that coming from donors. And that's an expense that you have to keep spending every year so long as there's no cure and there's lots of people who need treatment. Every time you prevent an infection, you are averting a lifetime of antiretroviral drug therapies with all the cost and the health complications that that entails. So, so long as the virus is circulating somewhere, you're going to keep accumulating those costs and no one is safe. So it's rational to hit this thing hard and fast to prevent the new infections, to allow a new generation to grow up virus-free. Robert, thanks very much for your time. Well, thank you, Jason. Okay, listen up. I'm going to keep reminding you of this because I reckon you like to save money as much as I do. And the clock is ticking on the launch of our new subscription, Economist Podcasts Plus. Here's the deal. The intelligence isn't going anywhere. But if you want to keep listening to our amazing range of shows from Drum Tower to Checks and Balance and to catch some brand new shows like Boss Class and the Kickback Weekend version of The Intelligence, you'll soon need to subscribe to Economist Podcasts Plus. Unless, of course, you're already a subscriber to The Economist, in which case help yourself to that skip ahead button. If not, though, you can get a year-long subscription to Economist Podcasts Plus and access all of our shows for half price, about $2 or pounds or euros a month, if you sign up before October 17th. Go on, pinch them pennies, and head to our show notes to find out more. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.
Japan's porn industry has long existed in a legal grey zone. Marika Ida writes about Japan for The Economist. The industry is believed to have emerged around the 1980s and it reached its peak in the early 2010s. Now the industry scale has got it a bit smaller, although it still has that cultural clout. But all these years, there has been no official law to regulate the industry. Producing, distributing and consuming porn is not illegal, but there hasn't been official rules to regulate it either. And it seems like a lack of regulation has left some people vulnerable. I met a woman who goes by the name Kuremin Aroma. She's a 33-year-old YouTuber. We sat down at a coffee shop in Tokyo together. Ten years ago, she went through a traumatic experience where she was forced to appear in a porn video, and she was brave enough to talk about her experience. One day she was walking in Shinjuku, which is a busy district in Tokyo, and then this man suddenly approached her, asking her if she would like to work as a swimsuit model. And first, Kuramin was skeptical and she was reluctant, but at the time she had aspirations to become a singer, and the man would say things like, if you agree to do the job, will help you become successful in the entertainment industry. So eventually she agreed. On the day of the actual photo shoot, the man started asking additional requests. They asked her to take off her clothes and get naked and engage in sexual acts. So in the end, Kudamin ended up appearing in a porn video. Kudamin experienced this in the early 2010s and around that time, there were other victims of the porn industry who started speaking up about their experiences, and the problem has been featured quite extensively by Japanese media in the past. And these stories have prompted the government to finally take action recently. And how are they doing that? So there was a government survey in 2020 that showed how one in four women under the age of 40 has been approached in the streets to work as a model. And Among those people who said yes, about 15% were asked to engage in some kind of sexual act. So the potential abuse within the porn industry has been acknowledged for a long time among activists and some legislators. But there was a moment when the issue became urgent recently. So last year, Japan lowered the age of adulthood from 20 to 18. Activists started worrying that that would make 18 and 19 year olds new targets of the porn industry, and they started lobbying hard for a new legislation. And in May last year, the government established its very first law pertaining to the porn industry. And under the new law, porn producers have to sign contracts with their performers and clarify what the performers are expected to do during the shoot. It also allows these porn actors to take down videos within a year after they were shot, for whatever reason. So now, a year later, what impact has this law had on the industry? It's hard to say if it significantly reduced the abuse. There have been recent reports about abusive porn producers getting arrested. But just when the law was established, there was an intense backlash from producers and performers or people who are willingly in the industry. 
Basically, these people felt as if they've been left out of the conversation or that they've been ignored. So the law was passed within just three months, which is an unusual speed for the Japanese parliament. And politicians did a series of hearings with victims of the porn industry and groups that are helping those victims. But they didn't really spend time talking to representatives of the thousands who are working for the industry willingly. And actors and producers have also criticized a lot of the content of the new law as unrealistic. So, for instance, the new law forbids filming for a month after the contracts are signed, and it also bans releasing videos for four months after they were shot. And workers in the industry argue that these rules simply aren't compatible with actual working conditions. And some actors even claim that the new law led to loss in job offers and income. And do you think this backlash is warranted? Something I found challenging when I was reporting for this story is that it's hard to get a full and accurate picture of the situation. So when you go to big porn producers or their workers, they tend to say everything's okay in this industry. There is no abuse. But on the other hand, when you go to activist groups who are helping the victims, they would say the porn industry in Japan is full of abuse. My stance is that the truth must lie somewhere in the middle. There hasn't been a large-scale study to understand actual working conditions or assess the scale of the abuse that allegedly exists. And some sociologists I spoke to have looked at this division in Japan and drawn parallels with the so-called porn wars in America or in the West in the 1970s. That was a time when feminism split between anti-porn and pro-sex camps. In recent years, it seems like the general trend is heading towards pro-sex. So a lot of advanced countries in the world have been moving towards decriminalizing or legalizing sex work with the aim to improve working conditions and prevent abuse. But it seems like those who are most vocal in the feminist community in Japan are anti-sex work. And even as I talk to legislators involved in making this new porn law about how we should position pornography or sex work in Japanese society, I often get a pretty ambiguous response. So they don't deny pornography's existence, but they also didn't want to say they're legalizing the porn industry or fully acknowledging it. Okay, but while these two camps are arguing, some people are still being abused. What's the best way to ensure that those people are still protected? Whatever your stance on sex work is, most people in Japan can agree that there needs to be a broader debate about consent and sexual rights in Japan. So a lot of laws on sex and women's rights in Japan are outdated, although they're finally improving. For instance, in Japan, the age of sexual consent was 13 for a long time, which is shockingly low. In June, the government finally raised that to 16. So even though we have a long way to go, at least with this new legislation, people are finally talking about sex and sex work more seriously. Marika, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Over the course of millennia, the extent of what's called China has ebbed and flowed considerably. The current borders were only established in the late 1950s, and to this day there are still active border disputes. One of the fictions that the Chinese Communist Party wants to promote as fact is that the land, the people, and the cultures inside those borders were part of China all along, 
And to help with that, the government is leaning on a kind of international stamp of approval. So UNESCO, as we know, is the cultural arm of the United Nations. Rosie Bloor writes about China for The Economist. UNESCO World Heritage Sites like the Taj Mahal, Stonehenge, these are world-famous things. And China has been super keen on registering such sites and practices with UNESCO. It's actually registered nearly twice as many cultural practices with UNESCO as any other country. And only Italy has more World Heritage Sites. But one of the things that's interesting is that it's using UNESCO to stake a claim to its borderlands. How does that work? How does UNESCO deal with those claims? So I'll give you an example. The most recent site that UNESCO recognised on September the 17th was a new World Heritage Site in far, far southwest China, the ancient tea forests of the Jingmai Mountains where Pu'a tea is grown. And these are the kind of earthy tea leaves that are known pretty well. They're grown just inside China's border with Myanmar, Laos and Vietnam. So the choice of Pu'ar is an example of the Chinese state using the UN body to validate its hold on terrain that was once contested. Well, once contested, I mean, what's the point of uh, bringing in the UN if the, the borders are already clear? As we know, states lay claim to territories with different justifications. So where they contain a population with a shared culture, language, ethnicity, that's easy. The legitimacy there is pretty self-evident. But in the case of China, you often see tensions, independence movements occur when border populations have a separate cultural identity from those at the centre. And the most explicit challenges that we have today to Beijing's rule are in the peripheral regions where the Han majority, who make up 90% of China's population, haven't always been dominant and in many cases still aren't. So listing traditional buildings and cultural practices as Chinese heritage helps establish legitimacy over regions with large ethnic minorities. So in a sense, it's taking a claim not only to land, but also to culture. Very much so. So what you see is Tibet, Inner Mongolia, the border with North Korea. These are all areas where you've got different ethnic minorities as well as land that was once not Chinese. And then suddenly you see, oh, look, UNESCO has said this was enduringly Chinese for a very long time. A really good example is in the far west in Xinjiang, where about 40% of people are Uyghurs. This is the oppressed Muslim minority, which is one of China's 56 recognized ethnicities. But if you look at the backing documents submitted to UNESCO, the sites in those regions apparently tell a very different story. So what they say is this area was a cultural melting pot for centuries. There's a nomination for the Tianshan mountain range in Xinjiang, and China State Council wrote, since ancient times, people of all Chinese nationalities have lived on this fertile land and have created a rich material, culture and spiritual civilization. So there's a thousand pages of documents. These are really detailed submissions. The Uyghurs were mentioned just four times, and three of those as part of a kind of list of ethnic groups who lived in the region. So what China is trying to do is to instill the idea that very early on, many different groups lived here, including the Han, and they're effectively rewriting China's history with the help of UNESCO. But I suppose one could ask, what difference does it make what UNESCO thinks about what belongs to China, what does not? Right, of course. In some ways, who cares what UNESCO thinks? Do we pay it any attention? No. Well, it's very important in Asia, partly because for a long time, UNESCO and the idea of world heritage was seen in Asia as a chance for the West yet again to say, hey, guys, we're great. We have old civilizations. You don't. 
So UNESCO is important there. But it's also a way to say in the international history books, this is how it is. And I suppose there's also an argument to be made, hey, if these cultural practices are being preserved, that's better in a general sense than them not, right? Right. So for a long time, the Chinese Communist Party was intent on crushing its cultural relics. And yet there are many amazing things in China, incredible cultural practices, feats of architecture and natural beauty. And so that's an important thing for everyone. But the politics are hard to ignore. So China donates more money. It sends more delegates to UNESCO than any other nation. The only thing that's stopping its rise in UNESCO is that only one site can be registered per country per year. The Chinese heritage laws are very clear about what the purpose of heritage is. So the aim, as written in the law, is to maintain the unification of the country and promote social harmony. So it's very clear that China's recent interest in conservation hides a much bigger political aim. And for the time being, the UN's cultural body has offered its own stamp of approval. Rosie, thanks for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Don't forget, next month we're launching a new subscription called Economist Podcasts Plus for access to all The Economist shows you know and love and some tasty new stuff too. To get in early and get half off a year's subscription, avail yourself of the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.